Welcome to Don't Read Drunk, a podcast about books and booze. I'm Jenny, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome back. Today is 111, and this week we are talking about The Cloisters by Katie Hayes. This dark academia book has part of the story revolving around the history of tarot, which also reignited my interest in learning more about the tarot. I've used tarot on and off, played daily cards, doing some personal readings, and I've done a few readings for friends here and there, but I really haven't committed to learning about the tarot, and so I've decided to focus on that for this year. The first cards I decided to really dive into and learn about are my soul card and then my personal card for 2024. And my soul card is the emperor, which I was totally annoyed with when I first pulled it because it's a masculine energy and I'm very much a feminist. So I was really wanting it to be more feminine energy, like the empress or the high priestess, something like this, or justice even, because you think of justice as the woman in the robes and holding the scales. So I'm thinking, okay, I what am I going to do with this masculine card? And I continued to learn more about it. I realized that this card is absolutely representative of who I am as a person. And there were some really great realizations that I had as I learned more about the emperor and how I want to live my life. One of the biggest revelations for me is that I'm a natural leader and it's really hard for me. It can be very stressful as a leader. Leaders aren't always respected and they can get a lot of hate. So that can make my anxiety worse. But I realized that as a genuine and kind-hearted person who doesn't want to be a leader, this is one of the reasons that I need to embrace it. There are a lot of people out there who are power hungry, who aren't as good a fit to be leaders as I am. And if I step away from my calling, then it just leaves space open for them. And for me, this doesn't mean that I'm just going to take on a managerial role at work or anything like that. It just means that I'm going to embrace my natural leadership and just take things on as a leader in my current role and being a resource and guide for those who seek me out. There's so much more about this that that I've talked about um, with one of my coworkers too, and what that leadership means and what me being a leader means in life than aren't necessarily just a title. And so we've really dived into the conversations about that, she and I, and, and what that means for me. There's so much more to the emperor that I really loved that I'll continue to work on in my life too and embrace more of a guide is how I live my life. And then my card for the year for 2024 is death, which naturally causes people to react immediately in a negative way. I also did personally. And then a friend that I was just talking about, she did too when I told her about it. Though the death card is about changes and evolution and transformation, growth, and wait for it, letting go. (laughs) Which, if you've been listening to the podcast, it's what I already decided my theme for the year 2024 was going to be my year of letting go. So I'm so thrilled with the synchronicity of this being my card of the year. Also, the death card is linked to Scorpio. It's the Scorpio card, which is my zodiac sign too. 
So it's reinforcing the idea that there is so much in store for me this year in relation to changes and growth and reshaping of my life. My world was shifted pretty traumatically for me in 2022, and I spent just the rest of the year getting over that trauma. And then 2023 was also this year of just really figuring some things out in my life and how I want to go about living that life and how I want to move forward. So for me, 2024 is my year of implementing those changes that I prepared for and thought about in 2023. I'll be focused on that letting go and open to how my life shifts in 2024. One of the scary things about the death card too is that there is a lot that's unknown about it. I don't know how my life will change. I may be making these steps and sparking this shift, but I don't know how that will completely impact my life and what my life will look like after I'm done implementing some of these big changes. So that's kind of an unknown and scary part, though I'm bringing in this positive energy into things and trusting that my energy will attract all the good things that I deserve in life. This week for the booze, one of the things that I'm loving is that I'm sharing more drinks this year, even though I haven't tried them. It's really opened up more options to bring to you as my listener for a good pairing of the book of the week. And of course, you don't have to drink the drink of the week or read the book of the week, but it's just fun to have more options that might be a better pairing for the book. And I didn't realize how focusing on mostly beers and wines, which is what I prefer, would limit me. So this week, the drink of the week is the Cloyster Cocktail. The Cloyster originated long before the book. It was originally created and published in the Playboy Bartender's Guide in 1971. It does sound really good, even though I'm not a huge fan of gin. The Cloyster has gin, grapefruit juice, lemon juice, and yellow chartreuse. I've linked a recipe in the show notes, so if you want to try it, or you can look up your own recipe too. I'd never heard of yellow chartreuse, so I had to look that up. It's a 130-ingredient spirit that's noted for its flavors of honey, saffron, and anise spice. It's also quite pricey, but there isn't a lot of it in the cloister, so I'm sure one bottle goes a long way. And it's so expensive because of the number of ingredients and its limited availability. Production is limited, so it's basic supply and demand, and the demand has gone up significantly as well, and there's still just a limited production. And there's also a litany of other drinks that use yellow chartreuse. Chartreuse is a color which is yellow-green, and for the liquor, there are both yellow and green options for chartreuse. It originated in France and has been made by Carthusian monks since night, um, sorry, since 1737, according to Wikipedia. So interesting choice for this week. You might want to enjoy a cloister cocktail as you read the book, The Cloister. As far as the author this week, I hadn't heard of Katie Hayes, but this time I don't feel too bad about it because The Cloisters is her debut novel, and it's doing well, so she's got a really nice website. The bio from her website, quote, Katie Hayes is a Californian writer and cake aficionado. She lives in the shadow of the Sierra with her husband and their dog, Queso, love that name. In addition to writing, Katie works as an adjunct art history professor teaching rural students from Truckee to Tacopa. She holds an MA in art history from Williams College and pursued her PhD in art history at UC Berkeley. 
Her academic writing has been published by Ashgate, an imprint of Rutledge. Her fiction explores how far humans are willing to go to believe the unbelievable, strange but real worlds, and complex female friendships. She also runs a Substack, which is an online platform called June Gloom, where she writes sporadically about creativity, culture, and California. Personally, it's also one of the reasons that I like to write is to explore humans, human nature, and why people do the things that they do. It's definitely one of the reasons I was drawn to the book. But other than our website, there's no real Wikipedia out there of her. There are some nice articles about her that I read, some interviews. There was one good article where she talks about the idea of luck and fate and how she incorporates it into the book. And I've linked that article in the show notes too. So there is more about Hayes if you want to really search for her and dig for her. But because there isn't too much about her or she isn't too well known yet, it's a little harder to find than if she were more popular, like last week's author, Salman Rushdie. Getting into the book, The Cloisters. This is also a relatively new book published November of 2022 that's still getting a bunch of recognition and has been front and center at a lot of the bookstores that I've been to lately. So I'm on a roll here. I'm not just sharing books that were published, you know, like 10, 20 years ago, though I'm sure there will be plenty of those coming up later this year. And this has been all over and been on my radar for a, a while. So I finally got to listen to it on Everend. It's the story of Anne Stillwell, a graduate student who moves across country from Walla Walla, Washington to New York City. Anne has decided that a life of academia is the life for her and kind of lucks into this postgraduate summer program at the Met Cloisters. Here she's working with other postgraduate students and an ambitious curator on uncovering the true history of tarot and proving that history was much different than we originally thought. It's a story of murder, lies, and obsession. It's a story that is considered dark ad- academia and compared to the secret history. The secret history, it is not. Now, that didn't mean I didn't like it, but books that can compare to the book that created the genre shouldn't be compared to that book. I knew about the Met, of course. I've never been there personally, nor have I been to really any very famous museums. I've been to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, the Milwaukee Public Museum, the Milwaukee Art Museum, the Titanic Museum in Tennessee, probably some other smaller museums too. Um, Nothing that truly has the Gothic vibes like the cloisters seems to exude. He sets up a great vibe with the atmosphere. There's that gothic feel of the setting, the sweltering heat of summer, the decadent wealth of Anne's co-worker and friend Rachel, and then there's the magic mysticism of the tarot. The tarot and the set of tarot cards that Patrick, the curator, the ambitious curator that I was talking about, is looking for is only one of the obsessions that weaves its way into every aspect of Anne, Rachel, and Patrick's lives. Anne is mesmerized by Rachel. Their friendship begins because they're co-workers, but Anne also admires and wants to be Rachel. Rachel is everything that she thinks she needs in order to be successful in life. Rachel is beautiful, graceful, and intelligent. She's wealthy beyond Anne's dreams. Quote, When I arrived in New York, I was eager to forget myself, to become someone new. Rachel Rachel helped me to become that person. 
I feel like a lot of times when we are younger, there are just people in our lives that we imagine have lives that are so much better than ours. They seem so effortlessly cool. I've had several of these friends in my life where I just wanted to be as cool as I thought they were. And I didn't know any better. Anne doesn't know any better either. Anne learns and she grows and she changes, but not always in the best ways, as we will find out. She seems to have more empathy, but also she does have a lot of ambition too. She's intelligent. She speaks like six different languages and could pretty easily get an entry-level job translating for I think a lot more money than what she thinks she could, and she'd probably make a lot more money than in the life of academia. She, you know, she's really passionate about academia and wants to go that route in honor of her father. She's got this very fatalist mentality and thinks that if she doesn't make it in academia, that she'll have to go home and be a waitress. He sets things up in the book to be very high stakes, that Anne has to make an impression at this job. She needs to meet the right people. She needs to be hired on after the summer program is up, as if it's Anne's whole life that's hanging in the balance of how the summer goes and how much she needs Rachel in her corner and how much she needs Rachel's approval. Also, this discovery or potential discovery about the tarot by Patrick seems to me so important. This whole idea that the discovery is so big that it means everything to Patrick, Rachel, and Anne, even though it's actually kind of one discovery in a part of history that might change one person's life, but still kind of seems pretty minimal. So I did a little research about this, and it's thought the origination of tarot was from a game called Tarot in France or Tarochi in Italy, and it was a gambling game, but at some point along the way, the cards were used for divination. So they're talking about maybe the cards were used for divination sooner than what we originally thought. So it would be a bit significant of a discovery if the cards were used for divination earlier than thought. And maybe certain aspects of that would be career making for that person. But I just felt like as a reader that is this truly, you know, something worth killing over? Is it really that big of a deal? And maybe I just don't understand like the academic world and how that works. It's just their whole world revolves around this one thing. And it didn't quite hit for me. Leo is the gardener in Anne's love interest, and I love the garden at the cloisters. Hayes is sure to highlight the poisonous plants, and it makes me think of the poison garden in The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware. I loved that detail, and it pulls in this air of danger and mystery into the story. I also got some Diviner's vibes and the Death of Mrs. Westaway vibes from the book. Leo is a bit of a toxic character. Anne keeps telling herself that she doesn't want more, that they've never defined their relationship, and she's okay with that. But she's so desperate for a kind word from him that it's just sad. She clings on to anything that is remotely the way one respectable person should treat another person, though he's really just a self-absorbed, terrible person. And I've dated him before, more than one of him. I felt that desperate for just some kind of humane treatment. And I just want to scream at Anne in the book that she is better and that she deserves better than this and than him. 
At one point in the book, he blames his bad actions on, quote, caring too deeply for her, that this has happened because he wanted to spend time with her and she just eats it up. And it's it's very sad. And it's sad because I get it. I've been and I've been in that position where I lack the self-confidence and the self-respect so that all my value came from other people. And I was just desperate for that crumb of respect or that crumb of affection. And what didn't for work what didn't work for me was that I know Anne was a little obsessed with both Rachel and Leo, but it didn't come across the way that I wanted it to on the page. If you watched the movie Saltburn, which I've talked about a couple of times, it's a good example and a good point of reference. Oliver was obsessed with Felix. That is a great story of obsession. That's what I was looking for, and that's what I wanted to see more of. A couple of reviews and reviewers have talked about the great female dynamic of Rachel and Anne in A Dark Academia, because we most often see more male leads, and I love that too. I just think it was a little underdone. Anne isn't obsessed with Leo, but she wants him desperately, as she wants to be Rachel's friend. That's the right word. It's more desperation than obsession. Also, I wasn't sure when Anne was confronting Leo about Rachel or why she confronted just Leo about Rachel. Why didn't she also confront Rachel about Leo or confront Rachel about Leo instead of confronting Leo? Though, I guess having been like Anne at some point, I guess I do understand. Anne wanted Leo to reassure her, and instead he did the opposite. Though there were the murders and the deaths, there are many of them throughout the book. And while the author leaves it a little ambiguous for some to kind of let you figure out which were murders, which were not, who did what murders, who was responsible for what, this is where I found one of the deaths to be a little unrealistic. And I was surprised none of the other reviewers that I read called it out. Rachel's roommate at Yale commits suicide by throwing herself out a third story window. And I had to look up online if that was even possible. I feel like you can survive three stories. And while I know the internet isn't always accurate, it seemed like I was able to confirm that death from three stories is possible, just not likely. So why didn't the author just make it a fourth story or fifth story where death is much more likely? I went to two different colleges. One had dorms that were three stories high, the other had dorms with like 20 stories high. And I couldn't find how many stories the buildings are at Yale where the dorms are. So maybe they are only three stories and the author was trying to be accurate. But why then didn't the author or say that the roommate, you know, fell from the roof of the three-story building? It was just an odd detail that stuck with me. I've talked about accuracy in novels before, and I like it when there is at least some attempt to be accurate. And on that note, a reviewer on Reddit mentioned that they work at a museum and that no summer intern would be working that closely on those types of projects with a curator. So I guess there's the suspension of reality there, if you know. This wasn't something that I would have known if it hadn't been pointed out, so that part didn't bother me too much. But something that you could easily change to like five stories annoys me a bit, but it didn't totally ruin it for me. 
what didn't work for me was the book just didn't seem enough. I felt like the author was trying to do a few things and had a really good start on them, but ended up more like in the mediocre range. I wanted to see more obsession. I wanted to see more mystery in the murders. I wanted to see even more secrets, deeper, darker secrets, and I wanted higher stakes. Despite hating Anne and Leo's relationship and knowing how yucky it was, it was a good addition to the book. It makes sense. It's well-written. Anne wanting Rachel's approval and support was well-written. Rachel is a great character for a dark academia novel. She's ruthless, heartless, driven, and selfish. Women aren't always written this way, and Hayes did it really well. Anne's revelation at the ending is surprising, but not shocking, but it also just didn't seem to fit for me. But I love the rest of the way that things ended. Anne does the same things that she accuses Rachel of doing, not taking responsibility for her actions. Though I suppose this isn't terribly unrealistic anyways. We as humans are excellent at justifying our actions. Anne, though she says she doesn't believe in the magic of tarot, in the end, has fully embraced it, and her actions align with what the tarot cards are predicting for her. So she claims she has no say in things, that she doesn't have a choice, that the stars were aligned for her, and the second she took the internship at the cloisters, that it was fate, that due to fate, things could play out in no other way. Anne has truly come full circle. She's become exactly what she wanted to be, and it's a little chilling. <laughs> it's a, There's some really brilliant parts of the book and others that just feel a little too tacky and cheap. All in all, I give it a three out of five. I listened to the Dark Academicals podcast about it, and theirs is a good review, even though I didn't exactly agree with them on everything. They decided that it was a Dark Academia book and had lots of great thoughts on it. I'd recommend listening to it, even though you've listened to this podcast, since we have different perspectives on the book. And I can't recommend this podcast enough. I've gotten a few book recommendations from them, and I really enjoyed the hosts. They're fun and thoughtful in their reviews. Goodreads gives The Cloisters a 3.43. One reviewer said, quote, My God, did this drag. I wanted to like it so bad. It had the dark academia vibes that I crave, but the story was so boring. Cool idea, poor execution. I don't think it dragged as much as this reviewer felt, but it definitely isn't a page turner like Fourth Wing that we talked about a couple weeks ago. There's a lot more descriptions and it is slower. It is a great idea and I was hoping for better execution as well, but I didn't think it was as bad as this reviewer felt like it was. Another said, quote, free will or fate? What if your whole life has already been decided for you? What about choice and chance? There's something, there's some amazing talent in these pages with such an assured touch, it feels like a seasoned writer. The atmosphere at the cloisters is dazzling, mesmerizing, almost intoxicating and overwhelming. And I only touched on this in bits and pieces with the gothic feel in the garden. And I also think what Hayes does really well with the setting and the atmosphere 
of the museum is the sweltering heat of summer. I feel like Hayes could have focused more on a few things and at times is a little too all over the place. The obsession, the tarot, the idea of free will. But again, there are some things that she does really solidly. Again, there are some definite strengths in the writing and story, but also things that just didn't quite hit for me and that I wasn't a fan of. I think it's a pretty solid debut novel, though, and I would be interested in reading more of Hayes media recommendation this this week between the world's podcast this is one of the podcasts about the tarot that i'm using to help me learn more about the cards it was originally created as the strange magic podcast and was rebranded as between the world's podcast after disagreements with the original creators it's a really sad story because i really love strange magic which you can find the episodes under between the worlds I love the hosts, their energy, their rapport with each other. I haven't gotten into the rebranded episodes yet, but I really hope I'll like them as much. I'm learning so much, and I would recommend checking this out for anyone who's interested in learning more about the tarot as well as other witchy things. Also, Shut Eye on Hulu. This is the story that, uh, that centers around a scam artist who works for a Romany mob-like family. It's like the Romany version of The Sopranos and would probably be better told from a minority point of view. But because Hollywood, it focuses on a white man who works for the family. Don't get me wrong, it's a good show. There are definitely a lot of stereotypes that play off people's interest in the occult, but it's made good by the fact that the scam artist starts to have real visions and begins questioning his whole life. It also has some great side stories where the daughter of one of the head families is forced to marry the son of another, and her father doesn't want the marriage, nor does the daughter, so they both push back on the old ways. It's about tradition and where things need to change. It's very graphic, so it's not for the faint of heart. And it could have been done done better as far as some of the racist stereotypes, but it definitely does try to redeem itself in other ways. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Instagram at don'treaddrunk. Check out my email, don'treaddrunk at gmail.com. And my website, don'treaddrunk.buzzsprout.com. There is no apostrophe in any of the don'ts. This is a hobby podcast. So if you can support me, that is always appreciated. You can do a one-time donation on PayPal using my email, don'treaddrunk at gmail.com. You can also support this podcast by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash don'treaddrunk. Thank you to my sponsors, Aaron Ruiz at One Up Till Sunup, who created the music. You can find One Up Till Sunup and Aaron on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, Avenue Coffee House. You can find them on Facebook and their website at avenue-coffeehouse.com. Also, Karen Rothley, Fine Arts. You can find Karen on Etsy and Facebook. Next episode, Prairie Fires by Carolyn Frazier. Bye, and talk to you soon.